Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce will be back next week, and we already miss her. So by now, all of you know that we're going on tour next month to Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and Washington, D.C. on May 21st. Go to the show notes for the link for politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets. They're selling fast, so please hurry. We want to meet you. Okay, let's get on with the show where, as always, it was a hard week to choose just three topics, uh, but we did, and they're great. So today we'll be discussing the upcoming trial in the E. Jean Carroll case, the wrong place shootings that we've been experiencing over the past week, and Jim Jordan's roadshow. And then, of course, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show, as we always do. But first, Kim, I want to ask you, I know last week you were giving a speech at your alma mater, Boston University Law School, a keynote address. How'd it go? It went really great. It was a really wonderful event that was put on by the Women Law Association at Boston University School of Law that brought together some really wonderful people. And, you know, we talk about a lot of things that can be depressing on this podcast, and a lot of them have to do specifically with things that affect women. And so it can feel like it's a tough uh, and very discouraging time. But when you come together in fellowship with people who are students, young people who are eager to change the world, professionals who are in the trenches every day doing good work, Uh, to bring about better justice, and you're able to talk to them, that always feels really great. But I did give a keynote speech about my my experience in law school and beyond, and I get so nervous whenever I address people like that. It's different just chatting with you guys. You know, I forget people are listening. But what do you guys do to get over those jitters of public speaking? I know you both have, have given plenty of public addresses. Barb, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you one thing that um, I have developed over time is um, I used to get really nervous also. And as a result, one crutch I used to use was I would write out my speech and I would try to learn it well enough that it didn't look like I was reading my speech, but it was still a very scripted speech. And I think really it's just repetition over time, having done a lot of speeches and realizing You know, you can flub and people will still like you. In fact, if you flub, people might like you a little more. You don't have to be perfect. You really just have to be human. And so I have taken to really writing speeches as just a list of points I want to make. So it might be just a list of, you know, a few words uh, down a page that just is a prompt to remember to cover a particular topic. And I don't worry so much about whether the I choose just the precise right word or I have a couple of ums and errs and I stumble because I think that's just what makes you human and it's okay. You know, I think about when I'm listening to speakers, I'd really rather hear them speak from the heart than read something. And uh, I think just um, that has um, enabled me to not worry so much about being nervous that things aren't just perfect. I don't know. How about you, Jill? You do a lot of public speaking. I do. And I have to go back a ways, which is I used to be uncomfortable, but I've never been nervous, and I don't know why. I I mean, it'll take years of psychiatry that I don't have time for to ever figure out why I didn't feel nervous, but I did certain kinds of preparation, and I use the technique you use, which is I usually just do um, three-by-five note cards because they don't make noise. They aren't like pieces of paper where they rustle. And I just write down an outline of points so that I make sure I cover things. 
but I don't write the exact words that I'm going to speak because then it looks like you're reading it and it's not natural. I came to a point where when I was um, the CEO of the American Bar Association, I had to do a lot of podium speeches on subjects I didn't know, written by other people, and I was uncomfortable with that. And I took a course in how to do that, where it was the best course I've ever taken. It told me to write the speech out. That, that is something that is written out in big letters with big spaces around the margins so that you didn't speak too fast, to put smiley faces occasionally so that you would look up and smile at your audience. And I swear, I still do this. And I use a special kind of folder they gave me where I can slide the pages so that you never hear a rustle. So that's what I do for the speeches where it's a subject that's not mine. But most of my speeches now are things that I know. And I gave one at the now infamous uh, Chapman Law School. <laughs> it was not famous at the time so much as it is now, where I decided I was in the middle of writing my book. And I had adopted a voice for my book, which was me speaking to friends. It wasn't a formal kind of thing. And I decided to try it out on the audience. And it worked so well that it wasn't a formal way. It was just as if I was talking to you, but I was talking to this big audience. That has worked very well. I try now to always be authentic and speak in my own voice. And I think being on television is the thing that really got me over my any residual fears. Plus, in that speech, people laughed when I wanted them to. And I loved it because I don't think I have much of a, you're the witty, clever one, Barbara, and you always make me laugh. Um, and I love listening to Kim sing particularly. That always makes me happy. But when they started laughing when I wanted them to, it was like the greatest sense of power. I loved it. And so now I'm very comfortable doing it. Well, I have to remember next time I speak in public to uh, imagine uh, the two of you enjoy sitting there and that, that, that you're the only people <laughs> and I'll just talk yeah. to you. I think people would be surprised to hear you get nervous, Kim, because you sound like a pro whenever you're talking with us or on television. Oh, you're very kind. Absolutely. And now you're making me nervous because I'm giving a commencement address at my oh, alma wonderful. mater. And now I'm really getting very nervous about it. And it's the day after our Oregon show. So it's like I'm taking the red eye back in order to get to the University of Illinois on time. So it's going to be quite a challenge, but um, you'll give me the the confidence, guys, when we're together in <laughs> You'll Portland. You'll do great. A civil trial against defendant Donald J. Trump starts next week in federal court in Manhattan. It's for defamation of E. Jean Carroll under New York law by Mr. Trump last October after he was out of office, in, at which time he basically repeated a defamation he had made earlier while he was president. It's also for alleged rape of Ms. Carroll by Mr. Trump under a new New York law that allows civil rape claims years after the incident, which in this case happened in the mid-90s. So, Barb, it's under New York law, both the defamation and the rape, and the event happened in New York. So why is it in federal court? Yeah, I think this goes all the way back to a decision made 
uh, courtesy of William Barr when he was the Attorney General of the United States. So you may recall that the initial claim by Donald Trump came while he was president. He was standing, you know, outside the White House and said all those awful things about, you know, she's a liar. She made this up. It's all about selling books. She's not my type. All of those awful things that he said. Um, and at the time, William Barr, as the Attorney General, said he's the President of the United States. So I'm removing it to federal court. Uh, and arguing that he is immune from suit. And that has been proceeding kind of on its own, uh, the Second Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, and elsewhere. Meanwhile, um, Trump is foolish enough to repeat the claim last October. <laughs> and so his lawyer very uh, uh, strategically said, all right, we'll go again. He's not the president anymore. So filed a- another claim for defamation based on the October one. But because of this pending case, it's kind of a companion case in federal court, filed it there. And so now it's that piece that is going to trial next week. Excellent. So, Kim, this case is not the original case that Ms. Carroll filed. That was for defamation um, in connection with comments he made on the White House grounds. And um, it's been removed, as Barb said, to the federal courts. Um, and he argued that it was part of the scope of his job as president when he defamed her and that, you know, you couldn't sue him for that. So what's the status of that original case? Is it still pending? It is still pending. And so that case, as many civil trials do, particularly ones that involve Donald Trump, often have a a lot of things which are called interlocutory appeals. You're appealing certain issues. You're not appealing the whole case once the trial is done. That's a regular appeal. But they go up and down to the appeals court and back down to the trial court. And that's been happening there. And it's stuck on uh, appeal at the moment to consider things like whether the president was acting within the scope of his job uh, narrator here. Uh, It is not the job of the president to defame someone (laughs) or to comment on their looks or anything (laughs) like that. So I think that's going to be a tough uh, case to make. Um, But again, we've really never been in this situation before where we had somebody who was a sitting president uh, committing things that could be torts and lead to lawsuits and then afterwards saying, well, no, I was acting within the scope of my job. So uh, the case law here, I assume, is is quite unsettled. So we'll see what happens. Well, for me, that argument doesn't pass the red face test. I can't imagine arguing in front of a judge that it was in the scope of his job to defame her. It's ridiculous. And what's interesting is the D.C. Court of Appeals got it on referral from the Second Circuit to get their opinion as the most expert in whether it was the scope of his job, and they've declined to answer whether he was acting within the scope of his job. So it really is just sort of hanging out there, um, and we'll have to wait and see what it happens. But let's go back to the case that's starting next week, because I think next week that's going to be a big focus of attention. And so I want our listeners to all know about it. And there were several major developments in the last week or two, and they're important to how the trial is going to turn out. So first, the trial judge, Judge Kaplan, denied Trump's lawyer, uh, and we all remember Takapina from his appearances multiple times on TV. He requested a delay in this trial for four weeks. And so Barb, what were the reasons that Takapina argued he deserved a delay? Yeah, this this is great. You have to give this lawyer uh, credit for you know just having the sheer nerve to file these things. That if I were the lawyer, I'd say, 
yeah, 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 there you go. That's, fun. That's a perfect language. word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this would be, Jill, um, there needs to be a cooling off period because after all, Donald Trump was just indicted by Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, the very same city where this case is pending. And there was all that adverse publicity. Donald Trump's name was in the news so much. We need that to die down. And so, you know, we, we want to have a delay uh, before this trial starts. Um, the judge uh, wisely, I think, sagely said, are you kidding me? Donald Trump being out of the news? Like, that's never going to happen. In fact, if anything, I think it's only going to get worse as publicity continues in that criminal case. There's all kinds of other cases pending. If we wait until the publicity about Donald Trump dies down, we're going to be here forever. So let's get it, get it on and get it over with. And also, I think the judge noted, you caused right. it. You, 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 the defendant, you're the one who made all this publicity. So anyway, next, there was a ruling that Miss Carroll could introduce the Access Hollywood video and testimony from two other women. And um, I, I guess I'm going to say it. I've never said this on television. I thought the pussy remark would end his campaign when he first said it. I obviously was very wrong on that. And now it's going to be introduced as the video of him saying that will be part of the evidence that Miss Carroll is allowed to, to introduce. So, Kim, can you talk about this video and the other women's testimony and why it's powerful evidence that will be admitted yeah, here? Yes. So in this case, uh, Donald Trump, uh, E. Jean Carroll is suing civilly Donald Trump for two things. One, the the defamation that we've already been talking about, and also uh, bringing a civil action for sexual assault under a new law in New York that allows um, sexual assaults that were committed so long ago that the criminal statute of limitation has long passed. It gives uh, alleged victims one shot at bringing a civil action in order to get some sort of recompense. So that's what she's doing here. And in that case, and I also think for the defamation case on honestly that this could be probative essentially she's saying Donald Trump just admitted he admitted to Billy Bush on camera what you know or on recording exactly essentially what I said he did to me um, and that this is evidence and if he has done this before to other women that that is essentially like an admission to bad behavior that he's uh, he, that he has committed this kind of behavior before I suspect Donald Trump's team will say, well, no, no, it's it, it has nothing to do with this case and it can be prejudicial if it's let in. But I, I think I would agree with Carol's attorney on this case. I think that's, uh, if not a smoking gun, you can at least, you know, sense that some some gunpowder had been in the room very recently. <laughs> um, that's pretty direct evidence to me. <laughs> so I might have been wrong about it ending his original campaign, but maybe... Maybe it'll have something to do with stopping his 2024 campaign. That's adorable. But there's... Yeah. <laughs> so there's other interesting rulings as well, Barb, uh, including Judge Kaplan's denial of Trump's request for special instructions to the jury explaining that Trump was not coming to the trial because it would impose logistical burdens on New York. And it's true that neither the plaintiff or the defendant in a civil suit needs to be at the trial. And I, I mean, of course, why wouldn't they be? But they don't have to be. But what did the judge rule in this case? Yeah, you know, this is another one of those chutzpah motions, Shell. Like, really? <laughs> um, what, what's really interesting about it is that 
um, Trump framed it in the motion that, you know, it's such a burden for the city of New York and the courthouse to have me show up because, you know, I'm such a big deal. They have to, we have to have Secret Service there. We have to have special security precautions. There's probably going to be a lot of cameras, you know, how they like to follow me, which is all true. Uh, and so as, you know, a big favor to all of you, tell you what, I won't come. Uh, and in fact, you should instruct the jury that the reason I'm not there is I'm doing a big favor to the city of New York and to this courthouse. And you should tell the jury that they should consider that in this case and explain that's why I'm not there. Um, and so uh, the judge has said, no, you know, you don't have to be here. It's your choice. Be here. Don't be here. But you're not getting an instruction that, you know, you should get credit for not being here, uh, which is, you know, the, the, the ultimate chutzpah. Not only am I not going to show up, I want it to inure to my benefit. <laughs> right. And and he he it was so ridiculous. First of all, I loved um, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, said that this instruction request taxes the credulity of the credulous. <laughs> and I just love that phrase. And it's so ridiculous that he would ask for it. The judge also pointed out how often he travels and that if the Secret Service can uh, protect him when he's on a campaign tour, the very third day of the trial, which is set, they could equally protect him while he's there. So he totally rejected it. And Kim, in another ruling this week, it's amazing how many rulings there were, Judge Kaplan said Trump will get an anonymous jury in Carroll's case. Why is that being done? And is it good? Is it necessary? And how often does that happen where you get um, a anonymous jury. Yeah, it's not very common. Usually jurors are allowed to, uh, during a trial, jurors are, are normally not uh, disclosed who they are. Um, but the, the parties know who they are. And it's uh, usually afterwards, they have the ability, as we saw in the uh, Georgia grand jury case to speak to the media if they want to. There is a concern in this case that there might be attempts to pressure uh, members of this jury, um, intimidate members of this jury, that they could be endangered perhaps by people who support the former president. We saw what happened in the January 6th hearings throughout it. We heard that people, witnesses in that case, were being intimidated in real time. And the chair and vice chair of that committee kept saying that during their live hearing. So I think there is a big concern that that could be at play here. Exactly. And so last, I just want to ask both of you uh, a couple of questions, which is, we just had a big debate about cameras in the courtroom um, in the Fox case, which of course ended up not going to trial anyway. But are there going to be cameras in the court as we saw in the Murdoch murder trial in uh, Savannah and the Derek Chauvin trial? Would they help? And are you betting on the outcome of this case. Well, so let's talk about cameras and so the this outcome. So federal court, right? So there won't be any cameras. Are you saying like, what, right. what would it be like if we did? I don't know. I, I think they can be. Well, no, I was, I was actually getting at, are there, there's not going to be cameras because right. federal courts don't yeah. allow it. Uh, and then maybe discuss whether they should. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I have some sort of mixed thoughts on that. On the one hand, I feel like they should be exposed to transparency just like everyone else. But uh, I've gone back and forth in this. There was a time when I thought no, then I thought absolutely yes. I might be coming back around to no just because of the way it gets used on memes and social media in a way that is so mocking that I worry that it diminishes the um, 
stature of the court. I, I don't know. I, I, most recently, I was the view that it is a way for the public to be able to participate and see what's going on in court and to learn about what's going on in court. But I guess I have mixed views about that. I don't know. Kim, what do you think? You know, I'm a little of mixed minds here because on the one hand, I generally believe that cameras in the courtroom is important for transparency because most people cannot see what is happening in closed courtrooms. I've talked about this a lot with the Supreme Court, but there is a little bit of a worry, particularly if Donald Trump testifies, that there will be the kind of grandstanding that will only serve to to be disruptive to the case and and perhaps even worse. We've seen the things that he said when he gets uh, a microphone when he feels under threat, um, Exhibit 1, January 6th. So I could see a ruling like that going either way, but I think, as we said, in New York, the chances of uh, cameras in the courtroom is pre- are pretty slim. I think the only place that it's harder to get cameras in a courtroom is Washington, D.C., so I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, the, there's a big issue about whether the Supreme Court should allow them. I have a different view than both of you because... I, I mean, look at what happened in the murder, murder trial and in the Derek Chauvin trial. I think that the outcome was accepted by more people because they saw the evidence. And cameras are now completely non-invasive. When this first issue arose, cameras were like a big clunky things. And now they're little teeny hidden cameras that no one plays to because they forget they're on camera in the same way that people on the street forget that they are being recorded by hundreds of cameras all the time. And I think the benefit outweighs the, out, the negatives. But so last question is, uh, what do you think the outcome of this case is going to be? Well, I think facts matter. So I think it's difficult to be able to predict that in the future, you know, without seeing the evidence. Uh, it's a civil case, so um, E. Jean Carroll has to prove her case only by a preponderance of the evidence, uh, which is different from guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I don't know about the underlying rape, but the part about um, you know lying and saying that, uh, well, I guess you have to believe one to believe the other, don't you? Uh, I guess I don't know. I'll, I'll be curious to watch it play out. I mean, I guess that's why we have trials. Yeah, I don't predict anything anymore. Like, I just I have no idea what's going to happen. I will be watching along with everybody else. How about you, Jill? You got a prediction? I can't wait to see the outcome. I don't because I'm, I'm like Kim. I don't like predicting anything, especially something that we'll know within a matter of days or weeks. Uh, no point in predicting it. I think it'll be an interesting trial. I will predict that. And I also agree with Kim that Donald Trump testifying could be the circus that is uh, something that we don't want to see, but it will be with or without cameras. I don't think that it will matter. Um, the part that's going to be played on Fox News is going to only be his side of the story, and his people will believe it no matter what, but I do believe in juries, and so I trust that a jury will make a fair evaluation of the facts presented in the courtroom. And I can't wait to see the outcome. Ralph Yarl, Caitlin Gillis, Peyton Washington, and Heather Roth. 
they're all young people in three different parts of the country who did the same thing. They mistakenly approached the wrong house or the wrong car. And the result was eerily similar. They were shot. Ralph survived and is recovering physically. So are Peyton and Heather. Kaylin, sadly, lost her life. And whether or not the shooters face criminal liability depends on state laws that allow homeowners and people driving cars to use deadly force. So, Barb, I want to start with you. There are a couple principles at play here in this case. Explain the Castle Doctrine. Yeah, this is one of these things you learn about in law school, you know, first year criminal law. And it you know, goes back to... Uh, the origins of uh, your home is your castle. And the idea is that you can use force, even deadly force, to protect yourself in your home. So if you find an intruder in your home, you're allowed to use deadly force. Now, you have to believe that the person is coming into your home to commit a violent felony inside the home. So it could be a, a home invasion and you don't have to wait for them to hurt you if you catch an intruder in the middle of the night. You actually can shoot them without incurring any legal liability of your own. But usually you have to act reasonably. You don't have to wait for the person to actually cross your threshold if you think they're about to. It has to be imminent. It has to be necessary. So there are a few restrictions to it. But generally, that's the rule. And Jill, there's a similar principle that I think our listeners remember from the Trayvon Martin case, and it's called stand your ground. Remind us what that is. So that takes the castle doctrine, which is a common law principle, it's something that has been made into statutes that extends the Castle Doctrine to anywhere you are. If you feel threatened, you can kill someone. And in the Trayvon Martin case, you had uh, Zimmerman, who was the person who shot and killed Trayvon, uh, feeling like, oh, he's a dangerous person, and I don't have to retreat, even though I could safely retreat, because retreat is part of what used to be self-defense laws. You were required to retreat if it was possible, not to engage and use deadly force. Now there's laws that say, no, you don't have to retreat. You can, even if you're outside, you can do this. So, yeah, it really varies from state to state depending on the state of the law. And and these three cases that we're talking about uh, today occurred in Missouri, New York State, and in Texas. So Barb, in Missouri, what do the stand your ground uh, law, what does the stand your ground law look like there? How does it expand the castle doctrine? And do you think that the case, the shooter in this case, could successfully be prosecuted? Yeah, so in Missouri, they do recognize the castle doctrine, and they extend it to your vehicle. So, um, you know, that pertains to one of the other cases. But of course, in Missouri, that was the Ralph Yarl shooting case where Ralph Yarl came to the door, rang the doorbell looking for his younger brothers, happened to be at the wrong house. And as he was on the front porch, uh, the shooter, the homeowner shot him there. And so one of the things about Missouri law is that it requires that the shooter act reasonably before he may use deadly force. Some states say it's enough that the person personally, subjectively, genuinely believed that they were at risk of danger. In Missouri, it is a reasonable person standard, an objective standard. So you have to say, you know, would a reasonable person under the circumstances have felt in fear for his life at the time he fired these shots? I think for that reason, 
he is not going to have a valid defense. And I'm sure the prosecutor looked at that defense when they were thinking about it. This case actually reminds me a lot of the Bernard Getz case. Do you remember that case from the 80s when Bernard Getz was on a subway and there were four teens who approached him and said, give me some money, you know, kind of aggressive panhandling. And he immediately just pulled out a gun and opened fire on them and shot them all inside the subway car. Uh, And it was kind of a cause celeb at the time. He was ultimately... um, charged criminally and acquitted at trial. But they had this same reasonable person standard there, which is you look at it, you know, what would a reasonable person do under these circumstances? And I think based on that, the idea that, you know, some 16-year-old comes to your door and rings your doorbell, really, I I think it is not a reasonable response to open fire on the kid. And according to the evidence, no words were exchanged. Uh, He just saw a young man who... You know, the the prosecutor said he believed race was a factor, a young black man. The homeowner was 85, an 85-year-old white man, pulled out the gun and fired not once but twice, once through the door, and then came back out on the porch and shot him again. So I, I don't think he's going to have a valid defense at trial. You know, Jill, the New York case is just as inexplicable. Well, I think all three of them are inexplicable, honestly, um, where uh, some young people, including Kaylin, pulled into the wrong driveway, like literally made a wrong turn, pulled into the wrong driveway, never got out of their car. So what's the state of the law in New York and and how might the Castle Doctrine apply there? So not only did they not get out of their car, they were retreating. They realized their mistake and were leaving when he shot them. So it's, um, and I want to go back before I answer your question to say that the the race has had a huge impact on statistics. If the person shooting is white and the victim is black, twice as often the white person is Mm. acquitted. And so that's something that we have to consider. In New York, there is no stand your ground law. And state law explicitly imposes a duty to retreat before resorting to deadly force outside the home. So in the New York case, this is a clear loser. I think the shooter is going to be indicted and convicted, and the law is pretty clear. And in Texas, of course, I I doubt that there is a a stronger stand-your-ground law anywhere in the country than Texas, save maybe Florida, uh, where the Trayvon Martin case was. Um, So that would generally be available as a defense. Although I think in this case, in the facts of this case, where there were two friends, two cheerleaders, who were coming out, they were looking for their friend's car, one gets into the friend's car, the other gets into the wrong car that she suspected to be the friend's car, immediately realizes her mistake, gets out of the car, then goes and gets into the friend's car. The driver of the mistaken car gets out of his car and opens fire on the other car. I mean, I just, I just, I just, but again, I don't make predictions here because it's Texas and I just cannot imagine a law that would allow uh, stand your ground to be a defense in that case. I think if he had shot her, God forbid, had shot her before she got out of the car, I think it might have been a tougher case factually. But in this case, I mean, my goodness. So so I just want to ask you both, you know, this these rash of incidents make me think about, for example, when I was a young reporter, I, as a matter of course, would knock on people's doors who were not expecting me trying to get comments or quotes from people on a story I was working on. You know, they, they, they had no, no idea 
who I was. So why do these sort of laws, these stand your ground laws, expanding the castle doctrine exist to give homeowners or car owners such broad discretion and have uh, such um, uh, this explicit defense if they shoot someone just for knocking on a door? I think one reason for all of this is our gun culture. Mm. I think, you know, ordinarily you have a duty to retreat if you can do so safely. And I think the idea of stand your ground is the other person might have a gun. And so if I run away, that's not going to do me much good because they'll just shoot me in the back. And so I get to stay here and defend myself if they are the initial aggressor. I think all of this, all of these shootings come about because people are just so gun crazed. They've got a gun and they've got an itchy trigger finger. Uh, you know, if we didn't have guns, none of these shootings would take place. There'd be perhaps some verbal altercation and then they'd work it out and they'd give the person directions to the place they're actually looking for and be on their way without a deadly encounter. But I think so many of our problems in society are driven by our abundance of guns, police shootings. They are, you know, police officers are freaked out that everyone they pull over in a traffic stop is going to shoot them. So it causes people to do very irrational things. So I agree with Barb completely, but I would add that it's not just that we have so many guns. It's that we have these terrible stand your ground laws because people think it gives them immunity and protection that really they aren't thinking about, is it reasonable, and that they might be convicted. And it goes beyond your house and your car. Trayvon Martin was shot in the street, a public street, not on someone's property. He was on a public sidewalk. And George Zimmerman was a uh, someone who was out protecting the neighborhood, a neighborhood watch guy. I mean, that's terrible. And your example, Kim, made me think about, well, first of all, when I was writing my book, I was trying to get information on Rosemary Woods, and I was calling people, and they were hanging up on me because they thought that I had made her look bad. And Bob Woodward said, you have to stop calling. It's too easy to hang up on you. You have to go knock on doors. And so the first door I knocked on, I got the door slammed in my face, which given the option of being shot, I guess I'm glad it was slammed. But it it, it challenges people who are, what about all the Uber drivers who are delivering food? What about people who are doing political canvassing? Um, what about just so many other times, like last night when I had to drive through someone's circular driveway uninvited, but I was pinned in and had no way to get out of the street I was in, and I really sat there for five minutes saying, I can't do this. What if that person kills me? And the fact that we're so afraid of that is is just something that we shouldn't live with. Um, I, I just am sorry that we have these laws. Well, it was an interesting week in New York as Congressman Jim Jordan brought his roadshow to New York to conduct fact-finding into Alvin Bragg's work as a state prosecutor as the Manhattan District Attorney. Of course, Jordan chairs the House Judiciary Committee and a subcommittee to investigate the, quote, weaponization of government. And it seems that this hearing was sparked by Bragg's indictment of Donald Trump. Jill, how, how can... A, a congressional committee go out into New York 
and investigate the work of a state agency. What is the scope? What is the limit of a congressional committee's powers to conduct hearings? Well, if you ask Jim Jordan, it's pretty much unlimited. But the reality is that Congress has the power to do oversight. And it's just that the Republicans refuse to cooperate with any oversight by Democrats. But now they want to extend their power to look at anything that they might possibly legislate on or anything that involves federal funding. And to some extent, that is a correct definition of the scope of their powers. What Jim Jordan is saying in this case is that the federal there was some federal funding used, and he points to some statement in the lawsuit that Alan Bragg filed that says that he did use that federal funding. And so he's saying, well, we want to look at that. And the other thing we want to look at is whether we need to pass a law that says no former president can ever be investigated or indicted, which it seems to me is beyond the scope of anything Congress could ever do because states have their own independent sovereign laws and their own independent powers. And the federal government cannot really stop them from investigating. So it's questionable to me whether there is a legitimate legislative purpose, but a judge has found that there is a legislative purpose. All right. Well, um, it is pretty expansive, I think, the ability of, uh, of Congress to look into anything that it might theoretically be able to uh, investigate uh, or legislate on. Um, Kim, one of the things that uh, Jim Jordan did in the scope of this hearing is he served a subpoena on Mark Pomerantz, who we will all remember is this former assistant district attorney. He'd been in private practice. Cy Vance brought him in specifically to work on this case. Uh, and then he resigned when Alvin Bragg came on and said he didn't think the case was ready and he wanted to do further investigation. And so um, before Pomerantz testified, Alvin Bragg, the current Manhattan district attorney, responded to that subpoena by filing a lawsuit against the committee and asking for uh, an order by a judge saying that uh, these subpoenas would be quashed and that the congressional committee had no business investigating his the work of his office. Uh, Pomerantz, though, of course, complicated things by writing a book about his work on the Trump case. Um, what do you make of all it? Do you think Pomerantz is fair game because of that book? Or do you think Bragg did the right thing by trying to stop this inquiry? I mean, first of all, just this, you know, this whole, this uh, courage of people to to write, you know, to tell the truth only when they are getting paid for it uh, in the form of book royalties is just amazing. Yep. But um, so uh, there are two sort of points happening here, which I think might be competing with one another a little bit. But so I think you're right. I think the fact that Pomerantz wrote this book, I mean, generally speaking, all take aside the uh, take away all of the context around it someone called to be a witness someone seeks to to quash that testimony but this person has already written a book about that very substance <laughs> i think you'd be hard pressed to find a judge yeah who would not who would who would quash that subpoena i mean that's just like come on you you literally asked for it you you've already spilled the beans you can't try to put them back in the bag now but <laughs> But the issue here and the reason why I understand why Bragg filed that motion or filed that lawsuit is because of the principle 
that Jill was talking about before. This is a local prosecution by prosecutors. The idea that Congress can swoop in and start telling local governments how to operate violates the the fundamental principles of federalism upon which our laws are based. I mean, that's crazy. Like, I can't explain how crazy that is. And so is there some room here just to back up and take that into consideration as saying, look, can you please let this this investigation by this district attorney complete itself and then afterwards subpoena who you want? But right now, this is not the time to do that. Is there space for that? I don't know. I, I don't know the the intricacies of the law enough to know how the court might rule. And it, nobody may know it because this sort of thing is another thing that hasn't happened before. But I understand why Bragg did this. I also understand why it might not work. Yeah. And, you know, hypocrisy is just dead, right? I mean, I mean, Hillary um, Clinton would like a word. I mean, that, yeah, that's right? to the point. Yeah, no <laughs> that's kidding. the point that you said. Congress does have broad powers. And Hillary Clinton sat there for, what was it, 11 hours? Yeah. And, and endured the whole thing. But yep. that was, you know, her official role, that Congress had a clear um, jurisdiction to at least ask questions about. This is something completely different. This is bonkers. It's funny you raised the Hillary Clinton thing because I remember the day she was testifying. I happened to be traveling to Washington and like I'm getting on my flight in the morning and there she is, right, testifying at the airport. I kind of see it peripheral vision. I go to Washington. Um, I get off, the, you know, then she's still testifying. I'm getting on my flight to go back home and the TV's on and she's still testifying. <laughs> I get back home and she's still on the air she, and she's just like, you know, bring it on. You know, she's sipping her water. Like looking at her watch, yawning. Yeah, what else you got? It, it was unbelievable. I'm like, she's still testifying. How can this be? She's warm right down. Um, well, Jill, let me ask you this. The judge in the case actually did enter an order directing Pomerantz to appear before the the committee to testify. What did you think of her opinion? Well, I didn't think a lot of her opinion. Um, there were some points in it. She, it looked like a normal opinion. It went through the right steps about standing and other issues um, and the court's jurisdiction. And it cited a lot of, uh, there was almost two pages, I think, of the opinion is devoted to quotes from Pomerantz's book. Um, and that does present, I think, a unique challenge in this case that may not exist because if they were limiting their questions to the case that he is talking about, that he has knowledge of, you run into the problem of he can't reveal anything he learned through grand jury or other methods of investigation. So that would be totally improper for him to go forward on. On the other hand, he has waived a lot of privileges and the judge made it clear that because Bragg's office didn't try to stop him at any point, that maybe they've waived their rights to complain, but it's sort of irrelevant now because the Second Circuit has stayed the stay uh, or, or has stayed the order to cooperate. So she said Pomerantz has to testify, and as of right now, the Second Circuit stayed that decision. So Kim, as Jill said, I want to pick up where she left off. Um, Bragg appealed that order to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and they entered a stay. And I'm wondering where you see this going, because, you know, there's a possibility that the court applies the Supreme Court's decision in that Mazar's case. Remember when there was a subpoena to Donald Trump about his uh, business records and his tax returns? 
The court held that before Congress can subpoena a president, it has to make certain showings, um, such as, you know, there's a legitimate legislative purpose and that there's a particularized need for the information and they're unable to get it anywhere else. Do you think that when you've got this sort of situation, um, a federal investigative committee looking at a state executive branch office that we could see some other kind of either Mazar standard or new standard articulated? I think that's very, uh, very likely uh, a possibility. First of all, it's the Second Circuit, uh, which is the type of circuit that might want to say, OK, I want to weigh these interests. We want the, the prosecutors within our jurisdiction to be able to do their job. But we understand that Congress has a role to play to try to balance out those interests there. Um, Mazars wouldn't apply directly because uh, Pomerantz is not the president, but he is a former prosecutor. And I think that there is a, a really good um, public policy argument that could be made to say, look, we, you don't want to stop current investigations or draw in uh, other people while an investigation is going on. And so a higher standard should be necessary here. And I think that's um, very much a possibility. Now, you know, if that gets appealed, <laughs> what would happen at the SCOTUS? I do not know. Yeah, well, I think it's really going to be interesting as a legal matter to pay attention to all of that. But, uh, you know, um, I'm sure a lot of this is all political gamesmanship. Uh, but in the end, there's some important legal issues at stake. Well, this is the part of the show that we enjoy the most, the part where we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. There we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Um, let me ask Jill, we got a combo of questions um, that relate to military law as our uh, military expert, former uh, general counsel of the army. I'm going to send these your way. Uh, first from Vicki, uh, when is a person tried in regular court, federal or state court versus a military court? Stealing classified documents while on duty would seem like a uh, military offense. Is it either or or both? And and then we get Sue N.R. 1295, who says, can you explain why Air National Guard members are not subject to any court of military justice? So I think they have in mind this airman who was charged last week with um, disclosing classified information. What do you say? Well, it's complicated, of course, but let me just sort of lay out in general what the rules are. The possible prosecutions here would be either from the UCMJ under uh, you know military law or the Department of Justice at the federal level. Both of those are federal. But there could also be, in certain cases, state crimes. So whether you get court-martialed, tried in federal court or state court, depends on, uh, in part, a memorandum of understanding between different jurisdictions, different sovereigns, and in part on who has the most severe penalties, who can try the case faster, and on a negotiated arrangement between the different jurisdictions. In this case, I would say that the federal law of espionage probably trumps all the other possible cases, uh, so that someone would be tried for that violation 
in a civilian court rather than as a court-martial. But it is possible. And then as to whether or not he was, he, he's an Air National Guardsman, and he is actually subject to uh, military law, but only if he is under orders from the federal government. So I don't know the facts. They haven't been made public. If you are in the National Guard, either Army or Air Force, you're under the UCMJ if the president has called you up. If the governor calls you up to, say, for example, plow the streets because of a huge snowstorm, you would not be under military uh, law. If you're called up to fight in some place or to do intelligence work in some place under Title X by the president, then you would be under military law. So we would need to know how he was serving, what kind of active duty he was on to know whether or not that was the case. And, you know, this is a serious case because there may have been um, breaches of sources and methods. If you can remember back to Robert Hansen, who was a spy who leaked stuff, there's a direct link to deaths of agents because he leaked the information to the Russians and he gave them names of people who were killed. So it's a serious case, and I think right now the federal government is going to work it out as between whether it's military or DOJ, and whether the state has any interest in this uh, is questionable in terms of these particular federal documents. All right, our next question comes to us from Mary in New Mexico, and Mary asks, are there IRS ramifications for Clarence Thomas's shenanigans? Shenanigans is Mary's word, legal term of art, I guess. Kim, you want to take a stab at that? I think we know what Mary's talking about. She refers to the shenanigans. Yes, I think our listeners know as well. I think the answer to that question is we we don't know, potentially. Um, Based on the facts as we know it now, where uh, Justice Thomas was given these lavish vacations and and uh, you know this house was sold to this wealthy billionaire who wanted to make a museum out of it um, I don't see a lot so the vacations hospitality is not taxable income so that would not be an IRS matter um, gifts you know things of value being given that could be seen as that so if Clarence Thomas received something that under the IRS code constitutes income, and he did not, even if he reported it on his financial uh, documents, but did not report it to the IRS, yes, that could be an implication here. Um, That house sale, he claims he didn't report it in his um, federally required financial disclosures because he took a loss. So in that case, if he actually took a loss, then then no, there would be no um, tax liability on that. But we don't know. We don't know anything. So it's hard to answer that question. So the answer is maybe. Yeah, you know, all those people don't want them to hire those 87,000 new IRS agents. <laughs> Might go poking around in your yacht, your trips on a super yacht. Don't like that. Uh, and our final question comes to us from Fred, who asks, can you explain how it was possible for the DOJ to track down and arrest Air National Guard technician Jack Teixeira in just a few weeks, while it is almost two and a half years since former President Donald Trump took classified documents after leaving the White House, and still nothing from Jack Smith, Merrick Garland, and the DOJ. Yes, Fred, I feel your pain. I, too, am growing impatient waiting for uh, something to happen here. But what I will say is they are very different cases. Um, In the case of Jack Teixeira, they were able to, I think, 
find the documents online where they just had absolutely no business uh, being. Um, they were able to trace that back uh, and identify, I think even uh, confirm that the photos of the documents matched up with the photos in his kitchen. But there's so often an electronic paper trail to find out that he was the one who had posted them there. So it's actually really quite a simple case. They don't belong on social media, the Discord channel. Uh, it appears there's at least probable cause to believe he is the one who took them from their pl- proper place and posted them on Discord. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly simple case. In the case of Donald Trump, however, it is slightly different because uh, as a former president, there was a time when he actually had the ability to access this information and he took it home with him, um, which is improper. But you have to show that the person acted willfully, which means contrary to most crimes where ignorance of the law is no excuse when it comes to possessing classified information, you do have to prove that the person committed what's known as a willful violation. That is that you knew what you were doing was illegal. And so if he says, I thought I could take them. I'm the president. They told me I could take them. That can actually be a potential defense. And so what they have to prove in his case is that he didn't really believe that, that uh, there are people who told him, no, you have to give these back. And I also think there's some evidence of obstruction of justice here that they um, you know, pretended to be complying with the subpoena and lied about how many additional documents they have and those kinds of things, which is the kind of aggravating factor that can make this a much more serious crime than simply mishandling documents. In the Texera case, there's just no legitimate explanation for him posting these things online. So it's just a much simpler case. I think we know what happened in the Trump case, but it's it's really proving that criminal intent that I think is is trickier than might meet the eye. And uh, I think that is what take, is taking so long. But it does seem that the end is near because they have put uh, Trump attorney Evan Corcoran in the grand jury uh, and have gotten a ruling from a judge that his testimony is not protected by the attorney-client privilege. So perhaps, Fred, our long wait is almost over. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. We look forward to having Joyce back with us next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. As you all know by now, hashtag sistersinlaw are going on the road. Come and join us as we record the podcast live on stage, where we'll discuss the legal topics of the day and answer your questions. We're starting off in Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and Washington, D.C. on May 21st. There are still some tickets available, but hurry because they're going fast. Go to politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets today. We can't wait to meet you. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Thrive Cosmetics, Aura, Blueland, and Lomi. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Hey, Kim, you know, listening to our discussion about the dangers posed in ringing someone's doorbell reminded me of a story that I haven't thought of in a long time. I was with some of my best friends on a trip to uh, Key West, and I went snorkeling and somehow got separated, was by myself, and suddenly looked up and I could not see my boat. And I didn't panic. And I kept swimming. And I saw another boat, which I knew wasn't mine. It was much bigger. And it had a ladder that went down. 
I took off my flippers. I climbed up the ladder (laughs) and said, excuse me, is there anyone here? I'm lost. And and now, and it was in Florida. Oh, my God. Think about the law in Florida. I was really endangering myself. And then they said, well, yeah, take a look. And I could see my boat in the far distance. I got back in the water. As soon as I got in the water, knew that the waves were too high. I could not see the boat once I got in the water. And I should have gone back on that boat and said, please take me there. But I didn't. And luckily, I obviously, as you can tell, because I'm here, I made it back to my boat. Wow. Uh, Because one of the girls knows how to do that cab whistle, you know, where you put your fingers in your mouth and you, I can't do it. But she was whistling and yelling my name and I swam to her voice. Otherwise, I I mean, it was really actually, in retrospect, quite scary to be in the middle of the ocean and not see your boat. But I made it back, but I wouldn't have gotten on that other boat in today's world. Well, we're glad this was in simpler times and you weren't lost at sea. (laughs) I was swimming, looking at all the beautiful fish, and I was following a barracuda, and I didn't realize how far it had gone away from my boat that I could no longer see my boat. It was just really dumb, especially because I shouldn't have been following a barracuda anyway. They're dangerous. You should hear the stories the barracuda says about you. Ah. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) 